Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and since 2016, Monica Shimonik has been coaching moms and dads as they navigate through the treacherous waters of the family law racket. Aside from her workshops, which helps with specific problems, her 12-week signature course, The Best Interest of the Parent, uses a four-quadrant model to create a robust healing and empowerment system so that you control the narrative in your life not the state. Use coupon code SLAMTHEGAVEL to get 10% off her course, and that will be found in the podcast notes. I have an excellent guest on. I have attorney Connie Regalion. She is a mother of three adopted children. She knows firsthand how challenging the family court can be, both legally and emotionally. She uses her personal and professional experience to guide her clients through their case, no matter what their situation entails. She has also been very active in educating educating the Tennessee legislature on their role in securing a judiciary that's fair, impartial, and accountable. After reviewing years of reports from the Court of the Judiciary and summarizing that information for the legislators, it became clear that this legal body does not fulfill its responsibilities in providing oversight for the state court judges. And she's also spoken in several legislative hearings about the duty of legislator as laid out in Tennessee Constitution to impeach and remove judges that abuse their power. Related to those appearances, she has also posted several news stories and hearings on her YouTube um, under Judicial Reform Now, and also she has a personal YouTube, Connie Regularly, and I totally welcome you, Attorney Regularly. How are you doing today? I'm very good, and it's very warm here in Tennessee. I'm not even sure where you are. Where are you located? Oh, I'm stuck here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh. <laughs> well, we've had some really hot, steamy weather, especially with the aftermath of uh, Queen Ida coming through um, uh, New Orleans. So we're getting a little bit of that, but we're nearing the end of our summer, so it's cooling down a little bit. And we always have a beautiful fall here, so I'm looking forward to the fall of 2001, in spite of the total chaos that our world is in. Uh, during mm-hmm. these days. Oh, definitely. I am too. It finally cooled off this morning and I was so happy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just been too hot. You know, and ev- the whole world is just, I think, in chaos. And, you know, we need to talk about the state of child welfare. And yeah. I, you know, do you feel like bringing us up to speed on the Family First Act? Yeah. So, and let me just uh, do back up a little bit because in your intro, you did talk about where I kind of started with the judiciary. And I've been an attorney for 27 years and I actually had a real life before that. I went back to law school late in life. So my family had been in a very successful restaurant business and I decided we had too many cooks in the stew. So I went back to got a law degree, although it doesn't seem like it's related at all, but I really thought I was going to help small business people. So I went to law school. I came out. I was a prosecutor for about three years and I ended up prosecuting domestic violence, child abuse, child murder was my first jury trial. And then I went out on my own because I needed to work from home at the time. Believe it or not, I think we've kind of gone full cycle about working from home. But I did have three small children. Uh, I am single. So I started working at home. And I really, when you are a small attorney like that, you do a lot of domestic cases. And domestic cases just seem to walk through your door, walk through your door, walk through your door. And so 
I ended up in a lot of divorce courts and I'm in a metropolitan area in, in Nashville as well as the county south of Nashville and Williamson County. If, so you look at a total population between the two of, I don't know, probably close to a million. And so there were several courts that I would end up in in front of different judges. And I found that I became, there were some particular judges I became very concerned about their behavior and conduct. I mean, in particular, I mean, just the way women were treated sometimes, maybe a, a certain judge seemed to have an attitude against women. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a judge up in Davidson County at the time who was very, just very snappy to anybody. And, you know, it, it was just so bizarre to me because you know, here I was as a grown up who went back to law school to, you know, I really thought my job, I thought, look, I'm a pretty smart cookie. I can under, I can learn the law and my job is to get the facts and get the facts ready and put, and take them to court. So the judge can apply the law to the facts and make judicious decisions, right? <laughs> For people who cannot make their own decisions, you know, together. It's also just kind of interesting side that, when I had gone back to, to law school, I also, I had to finish up a couple things, I'm actually my undergraduate. So I finished those, but at the same time, I did all of my master's coursework in group dynamics and organizational psychology. So I went into law and I already had this mentality of conflict and conflict resolution and, and also intellectual fraud, which we could have, we could do a whole podcast on intellectual fraud because... The, the whole courtroom is a swamp of intellectual fraud about whether things are relevant or whether they're supported by the facts. It's all argument. And I'd heard this funny expression in law school, <clears throat> excuse me, where they had said, when you go to court, you argue the facts. And if the facts aren't on your side, you argue the law. And if the law's not on your side, you just argue, right? And I found out that that was really more true than I had ever imagined because I thought it was like a joke when I was mm -hmm. in law school. And so I saw these judges and it got some places it was really bad. Like I could really tell, um, especially if there was, I was representing a, a mom and there was a lot of narcissism on the other side. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it was like the narcissistic judges were like siding with these narcissistic, abusive husbands. And then sometimes, you know, women were, I mean, it, sometimes it'd be just the opposite. And, and like a female judge may think that all women were liars. I mean, it was just so, it's like crazy land. I, that's all I can tell you is like crazy land. Mm -hmm. And so what I started looking into is how do you file judicial complaints? What, when is the best time to file a judicial complaint? How do you file motions for recusal? And we had one judge in Davidson County, totally crazy. Like she would just like yell at people. And so I was like, how do you get recusal? How do you get these judges away? And at the time, the only thing you could do is you could file a motion for the recusal. The judge heard the motion themselves. And if they did not recuse themselves, you were just stuck there until you finished the case and you could bring it up on appeal. And that is the one thing that our small group, and we're talking now back in 2009, 2010, our small group of citizen lobbying and, and families who were finally strong enough to step up and talk about how they'd been mistreated in the family court system, we were able to make that one change. And the way it is now is that you file a motion for recusal. It has to be supported with an affidavit as to why you believe there's bias or unconstitutional conduct. And then you file it in front of that judge. But then if the judge, the judge denies it, he has to give a, 
a written opinion as to why it's denied, and then you have an immediate right to appeal. You don't have to, you don't have to wait till the end of the case. Now, if a judge denies it, a judge can continue to hear the case. So if you have a really crappy judge who's really evil, he's going to deny it, and then he's going to keep hearing it. He's not going to stay the case until the appeal is over. But that has become, I think, one of the biggest pluses in Tennessee. I don't think anybody else is doing it. And that is the one huge plus that we have here. And that all came out of citizen lobbying. And I want to stress that because part of my story to people these days is you can do something, you know, and you may think one voice is not enough, but you know what? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten voices. You have to create a flock. And if you're, if you, if something bad is happening to you, it's happening to other people. There's just no doubt. You know, you are not the only person in the world who's suffering from that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, so, um, so anyway, so that's kind of where I started. And then I started working more with um, more in, I ended up getting more people coming to me who had uh, something going on in the child welfare system. And I mean, just crazy stuff. And so I started really tracking what they were doing, how they were doing things, the funding system behind it. I mean, just the whole perverted system and working, lobbying, doing lobbying up in DC with some people doing some lobbying on a state level and you know and i got and that's a whole different court system because in tennessee you have what's called the circuit court system Mm -hmm. and then you have the juvenile court system and they are two separate court entities and so this the whole divorce thing was happening in this circuit court level and you know we finally did get a few things not perfect but kind of mended where we did have an opportunity to bring up recusals we could do mediation you know and it still depends honestly 80 percent of it is who the attorneys are i'm just telling you mm-hmm. i never hated attorneys so much until i became an attorney that 80, yeah 80 percent of it is the is the attorneys and if i have a good attorney on the other side that i can work with that i can sit and i can negotiate with and we can mm-hmm. play out the scenarios just between each other and get down to a resolution that is just somewhere in the middle, then I can settle any case. But if I have an attorney on the other side who's a total asshole and Mm -hmm. who just wants to make a scene or think they're in bed with the judge Mm -hmm. or, you know, they want to go in and they want to start talking smack about me and, you know, making up crap about I didn't do this or I didn't do that. I mean, I'm always like super prepared and I always carry a recorder Mm -hmm. and I make notes all the time. I document everything. So, you know, if they're like, she didn't send me that, I don't even know what she's talking about today, judge, because for people who need to know if you're going through the court system, the whole tactic of making your attorney look stupid is part of the ploy right? So they want you to walk out of that courtroom and think to yourself, man, I have a shitty attorney, right? And often, I mean, I have prompted, depending on the judge, I have prompted people. This one crazy judge we had in Nashville, I would tell my clients walking into the courtroom, I'd say, look, 
Somebody in this courtroom is going to get yelled at today. They're going to get scolded. They're going to get quashed. They're going to get stomped on. They're going to be made to look stupid. And I don't know. It could be me today. It may not be me. It may be somebody else. But I want you to know ahead of time, if it just happens to be me, if I'm the one whose head is on the chopping block today, I'm not as stupid as this judge is going to try to make me look. Mm-hmm. Because that is one of the tactics with judges and with other attorneys. And so, you know, getting to know your attorney your relationship with your attorney, helping your attorney, helping your attorney prepare, helping your attorney being a good witness yourself. Those are all so, so critical. Mm-hmm. So am I confusing you so far? Oh, no, it's like you have to do your own homework and dig up information to help your attorney become successful. You know, you, you just can't tell them the problem. And then here yeah. it is, go in and argue it. I mean, I had to provide paperwork a very thick paperwork that, you know, my attorney had to go through. I just, well, and I tell, and I tell all of my clients, whether it's in divorce or child welfare or contract, it doesn't matter what it is though. I always tell my clients, look, you own the facts. I'm just the lawyer. I don't know any of the facts of your case. I can tell you, here's what I see the allegations are. I can tell you, you're going to need this, this, and this just to, you know, so that you, we can have you posture the way we need to, but you own the facts because so many times, you know, I, people don't tell me all the facts and then we get in the courtroom and they're trying to pass me notes, you know, during the testimony about, oh, I didn't, you know, that was on the 24th of August and there were three other people there. And that's not really what I said. And I'm like, okay, now you can't know everything when you walk into the courtroom. So, you know, there has to be some level of forgiveness there, but Uh, You know, people have got to help prepare their cases. They have got to help prepare the defense and the offense of their own cases. So now I want to move into and let's talk about child welfare because that has really become a passion because family policy in the United States is so uh so dysfunctional Mm -hmm. and so disjointed and so i mean the states have so many distinctions that they're they're it's 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 amazingly chaotic it's amazingly chaotic because when you look at things like commercial transactions i mean there are uniform laws there's uniform commercial paper law there's uniform trust codes you know there's uniform child support enforcement but when it comes to family issues there is absolutely no uniformity and so when we look at when we switch now and and let's kind of talk about that child welfare system because i'm just passionate about us being able to make some changes so that we can restore family integrity in this nation because it's such it's in such a horrible place so um we have a, a whole child welfare system that is based on a perverted financial scheme that is all your tax dollars okay oh definitely you know this because this whole thing i mean it's it's frightening and it's disgusting and it's it's sad that the whole divorce industry is the industry that that is so corrupt and takes people's money okay which that does not need to and there needs to be some major changes there but when you take now you take that just general corruption and twisting the facts and and mistreating people and you use our tax money Mm -hmm. to do it i mean that's like all of our tax money right so 
you know, so it's important that we, um, you know, that we understand that whole process of child welfare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just want people to understand that this is a real critical system that we have to make improvements on that we've got to make some long-term improvements on. So we have this federal funding scheme and it's called Title IV-E. So Title IV-E is the foster care money. So foster care money is money that is, it comes from our social security fund, that Title IV-E, and it's money that goes to the states to manage children who are placed in foster care and to then provide services to families after children are already in foster care. So the, the perversion of this is that a lot of children, there are like 700,000 kids in the foster care system, and we know that 85% of those are there for neglect, and about half of those are for some type of substance abuse, and the other half are some kind of neglect that can be everything from wanting a second opinion, wanting to change your child's educational scheme, getting in a fight with a teacher, you know, your doctor doesn't agree that you don't want to vaccinate, so it can be a whole variety of things. So we, um, but the only way they can provide funds to help a family or to give them additional services is to take your child out of your home, right? Mm -hmm. And put your child in the home of strangers. And I tell people, you know, I says like, I don't even know how we got to this place because I want you to imagine like you get a knock on your door at eight o'clock at night and you open the door and there's a, you know, there's a stranger and there's four cop cars outside and they look at you and they say, uh, can you grab a few clothes? Cause we're taking you tonight, right? Taking you. And they drop you off in some stranger's home and you don't even know where you are. I mean, and as an adult that creeps you out, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like, what? And we're yes. doing that to children and babies and, and, and children who are already traumatized by, by whatever is happening in their life. And maybe there's, and, and you know, if there's domestic violence in the home, CPS will come in and take a child, take all the children out of their home when there's domestic violence and instead of protecting the children in a safe place with their parent who is the protective parent. So it is mm -hmm. a system that is devastating. It is devastating. So we have to, this is a system that started in place in 1974 with the Mondell Act. And over the next 20 years, so 74, 84, 94, money just started flowing out to the state. Again, your money, <laughs> my money, our hard-earned money, all those tax dollars, all that hard work we do that we pay out to the federal government, they are flipping, giving it away like crazy, like it's free money, right? And mm -hmm. our crazy world now, this is like, we know it's like it's like gone nuts. They don't even know what money means in Washington, D.C. anymore. Mm -mm. So they're giving out all this money for foster care, and then they treat. And, and finally, through citizen lobbying, through getting a group of people, we started organizing through social media. We started going to Washington, D.C. in 2015 and walking around, knocking on doors. We'd have three or four people each, and we'd just go like, uh, we want to talk about child welfare. And, you know, we'd get some legislative aid in the little room and just tell these horrendous stories about CPS stealing children. And, you know, once in a while, we'd get a congressman or a senator occasionally. But we were finally able just through tracking the halls, going in, knocking on doors. Now, let me remind people. 
There are 100 senators and there's 400 and what, 93 congressmen. So that's a lot of doors to knock on. You know, that's 600 people that you have to go knock on their doors. And so we would take these groups and it was exhausting and we'd spend all morning, all afternoon, whatever, and then try to do some type of a rally. So we got passed in February 2018 an act. It's called the Families, Family First Prevention and Services Act. And one of the things that that was to do was to provide a pretty, uh, a pretty paradigm, a pretty huge paradigm shift in the actual funding process so that the state could provide services for a family, which would include maybe anger management, family counseling, maybe even substance abuse counseling, uh, some type of budget and finance counseling for 12 months before they would try to remove that child. Mm -hmm. So this is huge. Not one single state has fully implemented it. That was 2018. We are now in 2021. When it first passed in, in February, every state was supposed to implement it by October 1st, 2018. It got kicked down the road until 2019 or 20, and then COVID came, and so everybody kicked it down the road again, and so now it's backed up to about 21, 22. But this is a huge shift, and I am trying to. I wrote a Families First Act for Tennessee, but it's such a huge dynamic paradigm shift that, that legislators are scared to death of it. So I'm just going to, this year, I'm asking for family advocates. If I can get a family advocate participating in these child welfare cases, which I hope eventually we could actually have a family advocate in the domestic cases as well. And that is a person who's really educated on the process because the attorneys don't have the time or the inclination to really educate the people who are in the process as to what they need to do, how they need to behave, how they need to present themselves, how they need to document things what to say and not to say to their kids because it's a very stressful time and every parent is different. So, but we're, but I want at first that that to be part of the child welfare system that we have a family advocate. Yeah, definitely because these kids have really no advocates. <laughs> well, and I mean the, the children, they appoint a guardian ad litem and they have a CASA. So in the juvenile court system, but they have very, very specific roles. But I'm thinking more of somebody who's, who's advocating for the family process and not necessarily for, not individually for the child. So because everything, because once you get into a courtroom, everything is adversarial, right? Mm -hmm. Everything. How to exchange documents how to, where you pick the kids up on the weekend, what time you have a phone call, who takes the kid to the doctor. I mean, every single nuance of your life is adversarial. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a family advocate at the commencement of the case, and let's just talk about it where I, what I would like to see from a divorce and family court standpoint. If you have a family advocate who can who can get right into that family and assess that family from the beginning, and that means asking like who takes a child to the doctor, where is the child's pediatrician, has the child had allergies in the past, what are your biggest concerns about the child's health, are there dental issues, do you think they need eyeglasses, you know, is there any special other special needs, do they, you know, that 
What kind of sports do they like? So that you can get that information, the real information that a judge really needs before all the spin comes down and before all the facts get distorted and, yep. and twisted, right? So that you can, because you know, in divorces, they go in and one person says the other person's crazy or abusive, mm -hmm. and then everything goes downhill from there. Mm -hmm. So, but we don't even know when we are at that point, who do the children really attach to? Who do the children really look at as their security? Mm -hmm. So that is why I want, you know, we need a family advocate anytime a family's involved in court especially with child welfare, divorces. But right now I'm shooting for the child welfare aspect of it. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, how would someone become a family advocate? What type of level of education do they need? Okay, that, yeah, thank you for asking that. So I have a program outlined for uh, basically family advocates in the child welfare system. And some of that will cross over, but um, you know, the, it goes from being trained basically on some um, very basic uh, uh, people interaction stuff. So how to set boundaries, right, is always important when you're dealing with anybody who's going through a fragile situation, whether you're acting as a mental health counselor or attorney or whatever. But if you're going to act as an advocate, you need to know boundaries, right? So mm -hmm. it's like you might meet, you know, you might there might be an occasion where you meet your the family that you're advocating for, at McDonald's for lunch, but you're not necessarily going to invite them to all your birthday parties, right? Right, right. <laughs> and knowing how you keep those boundaries in place. And then you also need uh, to know, like in child welfare, of generally the interplay between policies, administrative rules, laws, and court opinions, just because that's a certain language that you need to learn to speak. Another thing is like just learning acronyms, knowing <clears throat> what acronyms that the family's going to hear over and over and understanding how those acronyms apply to your case so you don't get confused. Another thing is understanding how to use questions, how to properly form your questions, don't leave things hanging. You know, right. one of the big problems in child welfare is there's always something left hanging and parents walk out and they assume this person's going to do something or some other person's going to do something and there's this big disconnect, everything falls in the hole. I was talking this morning with a person who works as a case manager, not for the state, but for an, a, a contract agent. And I was saying, you come into these meetings in a child welfare meeting and everybody's so intense, like, you know, oh, we got to get the, <clears throat> excuse me, we got to get this done and we got to get that done. And then they walk out of the room and nobody does anything. Right. So right. you have this, you have this contrast of this intensity. And I know like when I'm in one of those meetings with the family, I'm like, Okay, so who's going to do that after you leave this meeting today? And what are the other barriers to reunification? What else do we need to be working on? So, you know, that's part of it. Understanding Americans with Disabilities Act and how that comes into play in a courtroom setting is a very important part of it. Understanding some basically mental health interactions. Understanding intellectual fraud because uh, you, uh, you know, the, the distortion of facts, the relevance and lack of relevance, et cetera. You, you know, I didn't even know that, understand that very well until I got into law. So, I mean, shoot, I was in my 40s before I understood that. But it's something that you can teach and you can teach people how to, how to uh, cipher it out and how to, to pull it apart and use it. And understanding some of the gentle, general personality disorders, such as narcissism, borderline personality, 
of uh, uh, histrionic behaviors and stuff. And just in general terms, not that you're going to become a therapist, but so that when you see these things and you experience them, you don't become shell-shocked by it or you don't become immobilized by it, right? So, you know, like all the tactics that they use, that a person uses who's got um, a borderline personality, these the tactics of, of recreating facts and, mm -hmm. and shifting the blame, right? Those kinds of things are all part of a personality disorder and distorted thinking. So somebody who's going to act as an advocate is going to need, you know, be willing to want to learn those things. So, I mean, I think initially we'll be looking at somewhere between a 16 and 40 hour training, uh, you know, that we have uh, as the first part of training to put somebody in that position. And as far as education, I mean, honestly, you could do it with a high school degree because it's a specialized training. It's like, you know, you can go to high school and then you can come out and learn how to clean somebody's teeth. Right. So, right. you know, with training. So, you know, as long as you're specialized in a special area and you have the, and then you are willing to learn the personal skills that go along with that, then you can do it. So, uh, so that is, and I'm glad you asked me that question because that is something that I want people to know. It's not going to be hard to do. You just need to have, be willing to learn and then be willing to develop the personal skills. Because if you don't have the personal skills, you will get burnout and exhausted and it will be too emotionally draining. And that's because you have not learned how to uh, objectify it, which you really have to do. You know, you have to look at it from an objective instead of the subjective, um, terrifying standpoint. Right. You can't make it, you know, like your own. You have to stand back and kind of like emotionally, you know, compartmentalize it. Right. Well, and I'll say, you know, when I first started doing family law and keep in mind, I was in my forties by the time I started doing family law, but I found after about three years, I became emotionally exhausted. Mm -hmm. I was so, it was so exhausted. And I happened to have a family counselor at the time who would work with me and my kids as we just adjusted to adoption and everything. And he, I just loved him. And one time I went in to see him by myself and I just said, Tony, I just, I don't know what I, I can do this anymore. I'm just exhausted. I'm depressed when I go to bed at night and he called it uh, empathy fatigue. And so actually all it took for me as being kind of the intellectual that I am is to put a name on it. <laughs> and once you can put a name on it, I can kind of identify it and compartmentalize it and know when to segregate myself from it. But yeah, just learn. And that's why you have advocates. An advocate is the person who needs to stand who needs to stand at arm's length and objectify the situation so they can break down the situation and find out what needs to be fixed around it, right? Because every problem has a solution. Every problem has a solution. You just have to figure out how to get to it. Definitely. You know, it just, you probably run into so many cases with um, domestic violence and, you know, have you had the tables turned on you with, um, say, abusive men that have used parental alienation and then they have manipulated its meaning? And then, of course, the judge fails to address that and then hands the kids over to the abuser. Of course. <laughs> I've done this 27 years. Of course I have. And, I mean, I, uh, you know, I... I'm cautious about too specific a details on any case that I've worked on specifically, you know, because I do 
you know, need to protect their privacy. So I am cautious, but I will tell you, yes, of course I have had, uh, I mean, narcissism in every flavor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Every flavor. And I say, there's not just one kind of narcissist. There are several kinds and the way they use what they use. And, and also on the other side of that, I mean, I represented a dad one time who had an absolutely crazy spouse who created chaos all the time. And, and so, and that's the borderline, right? The borderline personality disorder is the one who's always creating chaos so that they can always keep the attention drawn on them. So, you know, the narcissist has their own way of keeping attention on them all the time. And they're, they're, it's the same thing though. If you look at it and you pull it apart, both of them, they're so, and it's all because they're so in, insecure. There's so much insecurity inside that they, ha they have to validate themselves by having having it drawn to them so having chaos just keeps them in the middle of it right because you always have to respond to chaos and that's one of the things when i see that start to happen when i'm working with the client that's one of the first things i do i'm like don't respond to that you know you're not going to respond to that because all they're doing is just trying to create chaos to keep you responding to it and you're going to respond wrong at least half the time and then it's going to make you look like the bad person mm -hmm. right so you have to be and finally with this dad i represented he kept trying to deal with it and i'm like you cannot be rational with an irrational person mm -hmm. so stop trying to deal with it on a rational basis like you would any other problem and you're gonna just have to let that irrationality just play out on its own because you can't fix it mm -hmm. What do you do when you're in the courtroom and the opposing puts their parent on the stand and they figure they're going to cry crocodile tears to win a case? How often ha does that happen? Um, well, I'll tell you that. I'll tell you something funny about that, though. What I have noticed is that judges who are narcissists, they are not moved by tears. They just like blow it off. They just, I mean, I had one judge one time turn his back on the witness and like took the clean box. I've got a box over here, but took the box of Kleenex off of this side of his desk and reached like that and handed it to them. I mean, a, a narcissistic judge is not going to respond at all. So, you know, the whole, the, the tears is kind of a funny thing. It can backfire you on you very easily. And, you know, I try to, before I take a witness in the courtroom, I try to make sure that we can uh, stabilize the emotions as much as possible. Now, I will tell you, I have had cases where there are real tears and there are real emotion. And, you know, I, I can I can separate that pretty easy. But um, fake tears and just crying, you know, I don't know. I, I've not found them to be effective eat one way or the other you know when somebody gets into blathering to death but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah there's a, a lot of shenanigans that go on in the courtrooms um do you th feel there should be <clears throat> video cameras and tamper-proof mics in these courtrooms 
So when I uh, started my citizen lobbying in 2009, the very first bill that I asked for was for video and audio recording in every courtroom. Mm -hmm. And this is back in 2009. And they dissed it because they said it would cost too much money. Now, almost every courtroom now has security cameras. And so in some courtrooms have a lot of the courtrooms have audio on them as well. We have finally convinced most courthouses, most court rooms that if somebody requests those security cameras, they should be made available to them. Uh, Davidson County, which is Nashville, will do that. They're not, the people are not told in advance that that's an option, but if you go make a request and say, I need the security footage from, you know, October the 1st at, you know, between 1 and 2 p.m. for my case, they will pull it for you. They charge you for it. Our juvenile court will, bring, will pull the videos as well. Mm -hmm. Audios, we actually have a law in Tennessee that's been on the book since 1972 that says any attorney can do a recording, an audio recording. I always carry recording. They, uh, and then it also says the cases say that people who are representing themselves can record. However, I have actually had judges tell me I cannot record in the courtroom, which is absolutely crazy. And I can't get the administrative office of the courts to correct that because it's outrageous that they would be able allowed to break the law. So, uh, but yes, they should all be recording and everybody should just, you know, this costs like a hundred, the best one on the market costs $150 and you can plug it into your computer and you can download it and you can date it. And you know, there's a web, there's a couple websites that you can upload and have it transcribed for a dollar a minute. And you, you know, and you can double check it yourself. And I mean, getting a courtroom record does not have to cost four or $5,000 anymore. And, you know, I love court reporters. I have a few court reporters that are very good friends of mine, but it truly is that profession is going to be a buggy whip. I mean, it's, it, there are other ways to get well documented you know what's going on mm -hmm. I just feel that there should also be video cameras or at least one of them on the judge and the witness stand because some of these judges behaviors are just so erratic you or they don't pay attention they're not paying attention <laughs> yeah they're like they're like talking to their clerk and and I you know I take a client and if I have a, a, a trial in front of a judge and I'll say look when you get on the witness stand I'm going to be watching you. I'm going to be watching the judge and we're watching the other attorney, right? I'm going to watch my own notes, watch the court reporter. I said, if I ask you a question and then a couple minutes later, I ask you the same question. I just want you to know, I'm not looking for a different answer. I just have to ask you again because the judge wasn't paying any attention. The first time I asked you, mm -hmm. he was either, you know, talking to the clerk or checking his email or flipping through the file. So you know, they don't pay attention half the time. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think there should be videos in the courtroom. You can have, there are videos in the courtroom. People just have to have a, a way, a method to get that. We are, I, I have a Florida group and the Florida group is working on legislation for this, uh, this uh, next session for videos in the courtroom that they can have access to at an administrative fee. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. Mm -hmm. Uh, because this is just ridiculous and has gone on too long. It's causing families so much suffering. Oh, and ridiculous amounts of money, ridiculous mm -hmm. amounts of money. So, 
you know, it is, it is well known that our uh, Court of Appeals, like 40% of the cases are domestic family law cases in our Court of Appeals. In our trial courts, it's like 60% of the trial court's time is domestic. And, you know, so, and it's destructive. You know, I know judges, you know, it's job security for the judges and, you know, attorneys, I t have told attorneys in my office, like we need to put a sign up on the wall that says bad behavior is good business because you know it just caught it just makes for a lot of money for attorneys i'm a different a little bit different kind of attorney because i tell people all the time it's like you know if you you need me to file a motion to get that before the court or we have to defend a motion i mean it's going to cost you you know fifteen hundred two thousand dollars every time i walk into a courtroom so think about it right before mm -hmm. we need to, to move that direction mm -hmm. yeah people have to you know even take your advice and if you feel like this motion isn't going to be worth it. Why bother putting the money into it? Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And I, I will tell them that. Or if it's like a motion for a temporary something, I mean, I will, you know, do temp motions for temporary orders, and you know, have done and willing to do that. But I just try to go over that with the client in advance and see if there's not another way, you know, to resolve that if we can. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, COVID has caused such a huge disturbance in the timeframes of custody cases. Mm -hmm. How's it down there in Tennessee? Well, yes. So COVID, of course, we all thought it was two weeks to flatten the curve, right? Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not <laughs> two, two weeks to flatten the curve. Look, I'm at the place now. It's like, if you just, if everybody would just go in their house for 30 days and then you could tell us it's over, we can have our life back. I mean, I would even do that now. Right. Cause I mean, I was like, there's no two, I've never worn a mask. I mean, I've had to wear a mask at some points in courtrooms, but yeah, it's, it's like, it's been destructive. So when it first came and it first hit us, you know, they closed our schools down in like March of 2020 and it caused a lot of chaos initially because all these people had parenting plans that said like, like especially spring break. So the kids didn't go back to school after spring break and the parenting plan said that spring break ends the night before school resumes, right? And so mm -hmm. school was not resuming. So everybody was keeping the kids and it became this huge, all over the place, it was this huge chaos. And, you know, the judges had to enter uh, bench orders that said that, you know, the regular school schedule applies. So. It's been, uh, it was immediately difficult just in planning for summer, you know, and then you had school shutting down, you had parents with custody who work, right? And then you had, you know, step parents keeping the kids and other parents were going crazy. And mm -hmm. it was just, you know, it, it was, it's really turned things upside down. So in child welfare, they stopped doing in-person visits and that caused a lot of delay in reunifying kids with their families. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of families come to me just like right at that time period. And we worked really hard to make sure that they had continued contact and, you know, that we could get um, uh, in-person visits initiated, you know, last fall as early as possible. So uh, the, the court system has been crazy because we've done a lot of court hearings on Zoom. 
a lot of people are not very proficient on Zoom and especially clients who aren't used to it at all. So the attorneys have gotten used to it a little bit more, but I kind of joke and I said, you know, if attorneys and judges knew that they were going to have to conduct court on Zoom, they would have had to do like a 12 hour class on it before they had to, before they were starting it. But, you know, we were just thrown onto it and it was pretty disgusting actually for a while because people would be on Zoom and like be out walking their dog or, <laughs> I mean, it was like, I was doing this one motion hearing and this one attorney's like, she's like, you know, you can tell she's like walking down the street, you know, in her sweats. And I'm like, that is pathetic. So, you know, we've had to do trials on Zoom. I've managed that. It's not the best. But honestly, some of the simpler stuff like motions and discovery and conferences like that has ended up being so much better and where I might have to charge a client three hours to go sit in court you know I'm able to do a zoom hearing and you know maybe only charge them a half an hour or an hour mm -hmm. so it there are parts of it that have made um, practicing law much more efficient and I really hope they continue that and the judges are getting better even the older ones so I think even they are realizing there's some benefit to that Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. How and, long? Oh, go ahead. Well, and I mean, just there's been in my dealings, there's been a couple tragic things. I mean, I've had cases where a parent has died of COVID and I had a, a I have a had a case where the parent died and the other parent was really still on kind of a supervised visitation, but they still had parental rights that created a lot of confusion because it's like, well, you know, they really weren't deemed to have full parental rights if they were having supervised visit and yet they still have parental rights. And it's caused really pushed a, a lot of cases back in court that might have been able to stay out of court, you know, with some type of other some other type of intervention. Mm -hmm. So it's been it's been uh, challenging. Uh, it's crazy and challenging, uh, you know, it's just it's a weird world right now. I'm more concerned right now over the uh, the school issue with children mm -hmm. and the vaccine issue with children. Mm -hmm. And I'm quite frightened of that. Um, they have, I have grandchildren living in my house. I had a, you know, first grader get kicked out of school for a snotty nose for a week. And because he was kicked out, his sister had to be kicked out and, you know, and they're trying to do school on Zoom. And, you know, a lot of states are mandating vaccines to go to public school. Mm. And, I, you know, I know that we're, we're in the non-vaccine group and, um, you know, they may require vaccines to go in the courthouse at some point. I don't know. So I don't, I, and I've been to the school board meetings and, you know, been participating with the parents that are reaching out there. I'm very concerned. Oh, and our DCS, uh, commissioner was asked about was asked the question about whether or not kids in foster care were getting vaccinated and she actually said it was up to the foster parent and they weren't documenting whether the kids were getting vac vaccinated or not and I thought well the parents still have parental rights why aren't the parents making that decision mm -hmm. instead of the foster parent it's, it's so frightening it's so frightening right now of course you know for years and years and years CPS has get putting kids on psychotropic drugs when they put them in foster care. You know, they just drug them up when they put them in there. So, uh, you know, so we're in a, we're in a very frightening place. It's a day by day by day. I, I keep saying something's got to give, something's got to give, something's got to give. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, but. Do you think uh, CPS should just be defunded completely and just get rid of them? 
Yeah, so a couple one a couple different ways to resolve that. When I go and I speak uh, in before bodies that are government kind of bodies, and I have spoken at the indigent task force and at legislative committees, I say you have an agency here that has the word services in its name. And it's, and it's spending all of its money and all of its time on prosecuting an investigation. And so you have, an, you have a conflict of interest within the same agency that has to be resolved. And it really needs to be broken into two separate agencies. The investigation of child abuse is a quasi-criminal activity that needs to involve quasi-criminal investigative tools right, which investigative tools are, are recorded interviews, real evidence, you know, collection of evidence, and then that is a quasi-criminal investigation. The services aspect of it is for families who believe, and there are families who call DCS themselves. They'll call CPS themselves, and let's say they have a disabled child, you know, who either has autism or maybe Down syndrome, but autism specific, especially, and that child turns 13, 14 years old, and they're having, a, you know, there's this huge conflict between maturity, right, puberty, and autism does not fit well together, right, and so parents have called themselves to try to reach and seek services, and the next thing they know, their kid's out of their home. They take their kid out of their home and then, you know, they don't, um, you know, and then they never see them again or they stick them on a bunch of drugs or something. So this and the services aspect of it has to be different. And, you know, in Tennessee and in most other states, we have this whole other department in Tennessee. It's called the Department of Developmental Disabilities, Mental Health and Substance Abuse. And that is a whole different a whole different department. And then we have adult protective services, which also adult protective services is really kind of a quasi, uh, quasi criminal uh, investigation uh, arm. So, you know, they need to look at this functioning and they need to say, if we're doing quasi criminal investigations, that needs to be more of an investigative arm of the government. And if we're doing services, we need more of a services arm. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican conservative, I'm a small government type of person. But the truth is, is we're going, we pay a bunch of, whole bunch of tax dollars. So I just want our tax dollars to be used appropriately mm -hmm. and to, and to strengthen families, we have got to strengthen families. That's the whole Marxist approach is to destroy our families mm -hmm. so that we have no more family connections. And so we, that one way for us to fight Marxism is for us to have strong families and for us to have stronger community support for families. So getting churches to have more of a family ministry, which is one thing I'm actively working on. And then having our government look at family services as a, and then keep the prosecution part of it, the quasi-prosecution is a separate thing. So in an ideal world, that's what I would like to see. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have a bureaucratic agency, it's like having a steamship that's headed one direction down the channel of the ocean and it's not gonna change its path, right? So you have people in there, they wanna keep their jobs, they like what they do, they don't work very hard, they have really good pensions, they have really good health insurance, they really don't want anything to change. All they want is for their job to be easier. So, so getting a bureaucracy to change um, 
which is one of the biggest problems we have in America when we change presidents. We still have the same bureaucracy, right? Yep. So if you don't get good leaders in the in those bureaucratic positions, then you're going to not make any, you're not going to have any changes in the way things are functioning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything uh, you could recommend to parents when CPS comes knocking at their door? Yes. So uh, it depends on if they come alone or if they come with six squad cars. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because they will do that, you know, depending how the crazy, you know, false allegations, anonymous allegations. But, you know, you don't, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very hard thing. It's so hard because I mean, sometimes you are literally in the place where you have to say to yourself, either I'm going to jail or they're going to take my kid. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really down to where we get this choice that we have to make. I mean, it's a Sophie's choice. If anybody's ever seen Schindler's List where, you know, Sophie is standing on the railroad platform. If you haven't seen it, just go to YouTube and look Sophie's choice railroad platform scene Mm -hmm. and you'll see this mom standing there with a child in her arm a little girl in her arm and a little boy by her side and it's like which one are you going to give us Mm -hmm. right and she gave away her daughter right did and and i mean i I remember the very first time i saw that before i was even involved in the child welfare system but if they come knocking on your door it's it's sometimes it's a sophie's choice and it's like, do I go to jail, resist, resist arrest, resist what they're going to do, go to jail, which will probably take your children anyway if they arrest you, or do I hand my child over to strangers? You know, people have to put themselves in that position and say, what would I do? I mean, you need to play that out in your head. I mean, even when you have an attorney, and I have a client that she had an attorney from day one, and I called and called and called and said, we'll cooperate with the investigation, we'll come and have a meeting with you. They went behind my back knowing she had an attorney and got an ex parte order in a different county went out of county illegally got an ex parte order and got an order to remove her innocent 12 year old child who had never been away from her mama shipped her 200 miles away landed her in the home of a stranger over the next 10 months she had six different placements she was introduced to sex during that time. She uh, had disabilities and it was, she came back a different child and we got the child back, but there is so much psychological damage at the Mm -hmm. end of that. She came back a different child. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's a hard, hard question. I mean, I think you should uh, be prepared to say, I would like an attorney, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to cooperate with you, but I really want the opportunity to get an attorney involved. So, you know, can we come back to, you know, can you give me to tomorrow to reach out, get somebody to help me? Uh, that would always be your first response. Mm-hmm. Um, so secondly, um, oh gosh, you know, like I say, it's getting down to that choice of do I get arrested or do I hand over my child? If you're in that place, you know, that's a hard decision, hard decision you have to make. And oh, it's hard. I, I don't know if you just, just this past week, there's a, a girl who was the, the winner of American Idol in Florida named Saisha Mercado. Did you see that video? Part of it. Part of it. Yeah. Well, I found it. It just rolled across my thing on Instagram and I watched the whole hour and a half of it, of them taking her baby, her perfectly fine, healthy baby who's asleep in her arms. She had to get out of her car, 
walked down the busy highway and put her baby in the car of a stranger's car seat. And she even asked, can I ride with you? And they said, no. (sighs) No. A four-week-old nursing healthy baby. I had that. And if anybody's going to go to my YouTube channel, you need to scroll all the way back to October 2000. October 8th of last year, 2020. And there is a whole video where I went to a baby snatching Mm -hmm. and my client had called me and said, they're here. They're going to take our baby. I kind of waited and it took them a while. So I just got up out of bed at 10 o'clock at night and Mm -hmm. went down and live streamed the whole thing. And it had 200,000 views on Facebook, Mm -hmm. but you need to watch it because you need to see what it's really like. And they can do that to you. And when that mama was sitting in that car, holding that perfectly healthy baby and her mother, the grandmother was standing right there and they refused to say, even if they thought there was a problem with mom, they had a grandmother who had a PhD in sociology Mm -hmm. and had served as an expert witness before for the state of Tennessee was right there in that parking lot and could have served as a safety placement. So it is real. They are stealing children. They're going to be taking children out of elementary schools because you didn't vaccinate them. It's time to be shaking the shaking these trees and and getting uh, act, getting active. And so I'm going to tell everybody. Here's what you need to do. Number one, if you don't know who your state legislator and your state senator is, you need to do that right now. You need to look them up on the website. You need to put them in your phone as a contact. Put them in your phone. These are the people. This is the number one line of people in politics who work for you, who work for you. This is the closest to the constituents, the state legislators. Okay, so look up your state senator, look up your state rep, put them in your cell phone. Now, what, when you do that, it's probably a good thing. Once you find them, it's pretty easy to find out what committees they're working on. And it's pretty easy to see what other kind of bills they've, they've looked at before. Okay. So you, you want to kind of get to know just, again, it's easy. It's, it's internet researching. Everybody does internet researching. So it's pretty easy to find out who your state legislator is, what kind of committees he's on, what kind of bills he's done. And then you need to look at your state general assembly or cabinet, whatever you call it in your state. And you need to find out what committee handles the legislation on family court and child welfare. So there's either gonna be a judicial committee, a civil justice committee, a state uh, committee, which is state agencies, a child and family committee. There's some committee that these laws are being directed to. So you need to find out who that is and who's on that committee. That's everybody's homework right now. That's what you need to do right now. So that as you educate yourself, that you can become conversant with you know who the players are. The second thing they need to do is they need to get their personal story or or the reason that they're interested in change down to a one minute, a three minute and a 10 minute presentation. And I mean, I've been in places where I have only three minutes and thank you for giving me what almost an hour. (laughs) But I've been in places where I've been, I've been told you have three minutes. Okay. Now you can imagine what that does to me. I'm like, but I mean, I know ahead of time when I'm going to have three minutes, I sit, I write it down and I practice it and I record it and I listen to myself. Mm 
And everybody needs to do that because I talk to people every day. Everybody says, my story is so confusing. It's so complicated. It's lasted so long. It's like, then you need to write it down and you need to know your story. And I'm sorry you where you are, where you are. God put you here for a reason. I don't know what that reason is, but you've got to learn how to tell your story. Mm-hmm. So you need a one minute story, which basically can be, you know, and you always want to hit them with the shocker line, which mm-hmm. is my kids were stolen out of my home and I had done nothing wrong. Right. The shocker right. line. Right. And then, but you need a one minute, three minute and 10 minutes. The one minute and the three minute are the most important because if you're going to get before a legislate, a legislature, they're going to probably want you to only give you three minutes. Uh, so you need to have that. So that's your second homework, get it together, write it down. And number three is learn enough so that you can have a very basic conversation. And that basic conversation is, You know, I say within three degrees of separation, everybody has been touched by the child welfare system in one way or another in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. So it can be your hairdresser. If you go and you're getting your hair cut and, you know, and you just start a conversation about, you know, I'm looking into the child welfare system or I had a bad situation, you know, it may not be your hairdresser, but probably your hairdresser's friend or neighbor or cousin or somebody else that's happened to So be willing to have that conversation with, you know, I say one person a day now with COVID and us all being stuck in our homes, I would be happy if you did it once a week, (laughs) you know, if you're going to the grocery store or, you know, when the delivery boy comes to the home, whatever, like, or get on the phone and talk to somebody about it that, you know, or, or tweet about it or Facebook about it, you know, just, there's so many stories coming out and put your comment on a story so that you have some part of that conversation, you're taking part in that conversation on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. And so number four is just make an internal commitment to your heart that you know there needs to be change and you wanna be part of that change. Because I promise you that if you verbalize and vocalize and make that commitment, God's gonna put everything in place that's gonna make that part of your life. That's gonna be the people who come to you or the knowledge that comes to you, the news stories or whatever. So those are really the four things that you need to do. You need to know who your state legislators are. You need them in your phone. You need to know the committees. And then you need to, um, I'm going to go backwards here. What was number two? Um, Educate yourself and get, get their, uh, get your personal story straight. Oh yeah. Your personal story. Yep. Yep. Get your personal story down to one, two and three minutes and then do something every week and then make a commitment in your heart. Mm-hmm. So if you do those four things, we will have changed. Things will change. I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. Now, how, how can people reach you if they have any questions? So I work full time during the day as an attorney. So I do charge for my time for any consultation. Uh, I have an office in Brentwood. You can look up my office by Googling Connie regularly, Brentwood, Tennessee lawyer, which will also probably come up with me being arrested for trying to help my client get out of a situation. Uh, but it's the Law Care Family Law Center in Brentwood. Again, I do charge for consultations. I do communicate with people a lot on Facebook. We have a Facebook group called the Family Forward Project. The Family Forward Project is our national group. Uh, It says 15,000 members. I think Facebook keeps kicking people off of it arbitrarily because they don't like groups to get over 15,000. And we do have, uh, we have set up a page for every single state. So it's good to get in the Family Forward Project group generally. And then you can get in Family Forward Texas, Family Forward Illinois, Family Forward Indiana, wherever you are, because there will be somebody in each state trying to help organize the state. 
The other thing is my YouTube is just Connie Reguli, R-E-G-U-L-I. And you can, and if you'll just put that in the notes, the spelling, so people can find it since it is kind of odd. And then um, you can just go to YouTube and look Connie Reguli. I do have Judicial Reform Now, which is what I used in 2000, probably from about 2008 to about 2012 or 13. I have a couple interesting old presentations in there. I have my hearing in front of the Joint Committee on Judicial Reform. I have a whole entire presentation in front of the 912 group, which was a conservative group on judicial reform. But most of my child welfare is under my name, and that's the one I keep more active now. A lot of my presentations in different states, I've probably done presentations in about 10 to 12 states. I also, um, have um, done a, lots of podcasts, I do lots of lives, and then I will upload those as well. If anybody in any state out there does have a passion for it and they do have a legislator that they know or that is in their family or they've talked to about other legislation, I will be happy to help them you know, find the right laws to get in place there or to create an advocacy program in their state. So if you, that the best way is probably through Facebook Messenger is the best way to kind of make an initial contact or even just posting something on Family Forward Project. You have to tag me in it and stuff, but I keep up as much as I can. We have lots of people going. Our leadership group is growing. So I'll have other people helping me with that as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. That's great. Attorney Connie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you do. I've, I've, you and I have kind of stayed in touch with each other, I think, through social media for a few years now. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. you know, thank you for just seeing that this problem's out there. I mean, the voices, that's all we've got is our voices now. So we need to use them and we will make change. Definitely. And I'd like to have you come on as a return guest as well in yeah. the future. Wait when you have time, because I know you're horribly busy. I can't imagine. <laughs> Well, you know, any platform that we can just keep getting that message out there, because I know people watch them, you know, and if I can talk to you and, and you know, 30, 40, 500, 600 people watch, that's all, all the more people that we reach. And so, you know, that's why with my Facebook lives too, I mean, sometimes I'll have, you know, 50, but usually three days later, there'll be five or 600 that have had the opportunity to see it. So these platforms are extremely important in today's world. And thank you, thank you, thank you for the time and effort and energy and equipment and everything that you do to make that happen. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Well, Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these families' courtrooms that in turn perpetuate parental alienation. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again in the future with Attorney Connie and other exciting guests. Thank you again, Attorney Connie. <laughs>